Hey there, this is Jason and Paul, and we encourage you to follow us on Instagram at stateofloveandtrust underscore pod, where we can continue the conversation with you. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get to the show. Welcome, everyone, back to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast. I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, alongside, as always, Paul Gillieri. Paul, did you see me this weekend? Did you see me? I see you now. <laughs> so our friend, Anthony Krisowitz, he had the uh, Rockin' for a Cure uh, fundraising show over the weekend um, to benefit Parkinson's disease awareness. How, how cool was that whole affair, man? So awesome. Um, very late uh, in the game, um, he actually asked me to fill in for somebody to present one of the bands. And I uh, humbly took that on and uh, I wore my black circle t-shirt and had my state of trust background. And so uh, if you're new to the show, welcome and um, hello again. You saw me on your uh, computer or device that streamed that wonderful benefit. So Welcome to the newbies and um, hello to everyone else. And here we go with an episode with my friend, Paul. I'm excited. What do we got today, Paul? Well, we got a few things on the ledger. Uh, let's see. We are going to explore some Pearl Jam songs that we actually prefer in the studio over live. And they're live bands. This is this is. I know, very like they, they literally record so they can play live. Right. So the idea that they would actually be capable of recording a track that sounds better in the studio than it does live seems uh, asinine. Just, but but nonetheless, here we are. With here we are. <laughs> here we are. So that that that's one thing on the docket. Um, I think we are also going to have a lovely conversation this evening about uh, a what if. I've got a what if plan. You got a what if? I do have a what if plan. Let's do a what if. You want to start with a what if? Let's go. Let's start with a what if. Before I started listening to Pearl Jam, uh, I was indoctrinated into the School of Rock via Led Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. So tonight, I just threw on an actual vinyl record, Led Zeppelin's um, double album. I threw on their double album. Physical Graffiti? I threw on Physical Graffiti. Those of you who are not aware, uh, Led Zeppelin has one double album to their credit. And it's almost become a rite of passage for some of rock's most iconic bands to produce a double album. Um, not every band does this, of course, but even our generation of music grown up and we had the Smashing Pumpkins with Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Uh, we've had other great double albums come out from classic rock bands. Um, what are some of your favorites, by the way, Jason? D- double albums? Double albums. Ooh, Melancholy is really good. That is a good one. Physical Graffiti is really good. One of the best. Um, oh, my God. You're putting me on the spot here. Well, concert albums they don't do not qualify. Yeah. They, it's got the original material. Qualify. It I could be like, a great a greatest hits album. Like for nothing example. Nothing has really come down come come out. Nothing has really come out in the last 
20 years that I can think of that, that would have been a proper double album. Well, this is true. I mean, it's hard to find double albums these days because we live in a digital age where people are so uh, single driven mm-hmm. to, to get somebody to actually listen to an entire double album is, is hard. Uh, you know, the who's quadrophilia, Pink Floyd's the wall. Uh, we, we mentioned melancholy. We mentioned physical graffiti. I want to say Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. I don't know if you're a Dylan fan. London Calling, The Clash. I mean, some of these, I think. How about The Wall? uh, The Wall. Yeah, The Wall is one of of the best. Mm -hmm. So the the Beatles' White Album is arguably the best. I was actually listening to that the other day. And one of my other prized double albums in my record collection, along with The White Album and Physical Graffiti, is uh, Exile on Main Street. I was just going to say, yeah. Rolling Stones, one of my favorite double albums. Very bluesy. It's a good one. So... I was thinking this evening while I was listening to Physical Graffiti mm-hmm. prepping for this show, I thought, what if Pearl Jam produced a double album? And I don't mean what if they produce a double album in the future. I mean, what if one of their prior records had been released as a double album? And quite frankly, based on the recording sessions that we know of, there are only two records in the Pearl Jam catalog that could come close to qualifying for what I would call double record status, meaning there's enough tracks recorded to actually produce one of these things. And uh, by my count, those two are Avocado and Jason. Binaural. That's right, my good man. So what if one of those albums was released? So we're going to go in chronological order here. It's 1998. Pearl Jam is still flying high on the wings of Yield. Great band. That album was almost a renaissance. It's funny how many albums came out and were labeled via reviews across the spectrum of of mainstream media as a return to form or best album since 10. But I remember those things when I was reading reviews of of 10, along with half of every subsequent album they released. But uh, that being said, they, they kind of found themselves exploring very new territory with Binaural. And it was an album that did not resonate with a lot of fans. Um, A lot of people had trouble accessing it. That being said, if you go back and you look at the unreleased tracks off of Binaural, uh, many of those featured on Lost Dogs have come to be fan favorites now. So I wonder if those songs actually found it onto the album. For those listening, we are not retracking Binaural right now. We already Already did did that. that. Yeah, what we're doing is saying, hey, Binaural as you knew it, or as you know it, uh, imagine those tracks in addition to the ones from the recording session that didn't make it onto the album. So we're just going to add in songs as opposed to substituting songs out. So Binaural as a double album, what are your thoughts, Jason? Would that hold up? How, how would Pearl Jam's career and that album be viewed differently today if it had been released under those circumstances? I think the easy short answer is better. Um, I think the longer answer is um, better because, and the because is, you know, we've talked about it before with our retracking. And that is that there are so many good songs that were left off. Um, You might say that it didn't fit the motif of the record. They had too many of a certain tempo or whatever it was in that moment that didn't speak to them to be on the records themselves. You've got, you know, a sad in the moonlight. Um, education. Education was on there or wasn't on there. Um, I think, you know, 
What, what, would we, what would we consider a double album? Is there anything over 70 minutes? Well, this would be 16 tracks. If you add in Education, In the Moonlight, Fatal, mm-hmm. and Sad. All of which, by the way, I, th- I think are fantastic tracks. Excellent songs. Um, yep. so, uh, the, not one of them is a bad apple. So you throw those songs in there, you're up to 16. Now, I mean, look, it, the, the lazy answer would be eight tracks per, per album, I guess. But uh, the, the reality is that at 16 you would probably have to look at the minute breakdown to figure out what would right. actually fit on, 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 the, on, the, on the record. So I think that is enough tracks for a double album. Um, let me look up some, some of these classics and find out how many. I mean, Physical Graffiti did, actually did not have as many songs. Well, that's as, because in the time, they were limited to how much, how much music you could get on one side of vinyl. Exactly, which that's was, why I'm, it was double album. Uh, which I like, though. I, I I kind of, I mean, look, it was it was their sixth album at the time. It was released as a double album for the reason that you just mentioned. But if you look at the number of tracks on that album, there are four sides, and there's let's see, six might be sixteen. Th- there's fifteen tracks actually. Really? Yeah. So the the side one had just three. Side two of that record, also three, obviously Cashmere being eight minutes long and In My Time of Dying on the previous side being 11. So that really added up, but that's only six tracks. And then you had nine tracks on sides three and four of the second album. So Hmm. ultimately 15 tracks for sure. You could do this now. Granted, none of Pearl Jam's songs are running in, you know, 11 minutes long. You know, they're, they're not hovering in that territory, but uh, we do have a few tracks on Binaural that are a bit longer. I mean, if I look here at the the the, total, the TRT for Binaural, it comes in currently at 52 minutes long. Right. Uh, Parting Ways is seven minutes. That's a high. Uh, of the Girl comes in at about well, it's seven because of the of the extra bit. Well, that's the, the true. Bon- the bonus typewriter thing. So it's really that's like four de- minutes. That's true. That's but I suppose true. You, so could, you just keep the full seven if Parting Ways is the last on either one of the discs. You would because uh, that. Well, yeah, actually, that track comes in at six forty nine, the writer's block track. So it actually comes in pretty late. So I, I don't recall how how much uh, blank air there. You, I'm there almost positive it's like four minutes for, for the, something. For okay, yeah. so you you don't necessarily have one of those you know epic marathon tracks on here that you do with physical graffiti and there were a few i mean in the light was eight minutes long and uh the 10 years gone was six and a half oh was about, okay yeah you know what i mean so you, mm-hmm. you had a, a couple of tracks that were in excess of six seven eight minutes long that contributed to the the track length but nonetheless i, I still feel that you can have a similar number of tracks even though they are a little bit shorter and these but are all the songs that we that we know of, by the way. I mean, correct. there were tons of stuff that was recorded at the time. Fold back and thunderclap, mm-hmm. anything in between. Now, now those, those sixteen tracks, by the way, those were the original track listing when it was first released in right. March of two thousand. So that that was the original track listing, and then they pulled that off. Uh, I want to say, and I'd ha- I'd have to go through that while I'm looking this up. You mm-hmm. tell me why you think. Uh, this would be a better album if it was a double album. I understand the tracks are good, but you think that supersedes the the motif or or the the tempo pacing of the album? You know, it, I'm 
I'm going to sort of contradict myself from my retracting episode because when I retracted, I think I might have actually been a song less than than the you know the published version, which was 13. I might have had 12 songs. I don't I don't recall off the top of my head, but um, I made a case for the songs that I chose because there were there were no rules with the retrackings, right? You know, when it came to Lightning Bolt, I dropped down to nine songs from what it was 12 or 13. So mm-hmm. I don't have a problem going short or long now. I think usually when I think about an album, I think about some sort of brevity. I usually think 10 to 11 songs is like the perfect number for an album. But if uh, I'm going into an album thinking, okay, I want to make this double album for a reason, then of course I'm going far and beyond. Now, if you ask me to retract and say, hey, I want you to retract this as a double album. Oh, okay, sister, here we go. Because okay. now I'm going to bring those songs in and I'm going to find ways for them to weave in and out. Um, now let, can, let me share with you a okay. couple of extra tracks mm-hmm. that would obviously add some some weight to it. Probably push us closer to twenty. But here are some additional tracks that were recorded during Binaural's sessions. You had Sweet Lou, probably doesn't make the cut. Mm-hmm. Strange, strangest tribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, we also have um, Driftin', which I, I think I would put on the album. Hitchhiker. We have Hitchhiker as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a couple of tracks that may have actually been retitled. So these could be original songs that ultimately reinvented themselves on into the songs that we know now. Uh, tracks that are labeled uh, via the recording sessions as Thunderclap, uh, Harmony, Foldback. Yeah. So I'm not entirely sure what those are. But uh, we do have, obviously, some songs here, like Driftin', I think I, I would totally put on the album. So that, that would put us at 17. If we did nothing else, if you added in Strangest Tribe, and, and this is a good question, like, do we consider Strangest Tribe to be a song recorded as a Christmas single, or was it simply a song recorded during the binaural sessions that they that they decided, you know what, let's just throw this lost dog out to the, the fan club here <laughs> as a Christmas single? Because usually with Christmas singles, they, they kind of have their own um, genesis. And, and I feel like if this was part of the recording sessions of Binaural, one of the band members came in with this particular, and I don't remember who wrote Strangest Tribe, that one evades me at the moment, but you come in with this particular track and it feels to me like it could totally fit with this album. So I actually feel like you, that this would be a, this would, I wouldn't call it a masterpiece, but there are a lot of folks that love Binaural. Mm. For many diehard Pearl Jam fans, it's one of, if not the favorite album that they have. And I've never heard anybody say, God, that album was flawless and perfect and all the stuff they left off. I'm glad they did because that stuff is just gibberish and, and, you know, fodder. It's not. Some of it was outstanding. A lot of it was outstanding. So I think it would actually elevate the way we see Binaural in retrospect. It It would have the same gravitas that uh, physical graffiti does for Led Zeppelin. It'd be that iconic double album that Pearl Jam released where they, it, I wouldn't go as far as to call it an art rock record, but because to me, uh, I've always felt that Vitology was Pearl Jam's version of the White Album just in a condensed fashion. But this would be, I think, a logical and beautiful extension of that into a double format album release. And I, I have to be honest with you, you know, Jeff mentioned some point in time where they might explore doing the same types of re-releases for some of their later albums that they did for Pearl Jam, I'm sorry, for 10 Verses and Vitology. And if they take that approach, 
look, n- they're not listening right now, but if for some reason somebody no, gets no, no, a hold of this clip, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't it be outstanding if somebody said, guys, just, just put this out as a double album. Let us hear it that way. Let's just let it sit and lie that way in that, that space. Um, Eddie once made a comment. He goes, I don't know why nobody wanted to buy that record. Well, it can't hurt to release it in this capacity, you know, but let, let's hear it in this fashion. I don't know. I think, um, you know, if we do get the, get the, uh, the box sets going forward past Vitalogy, uh, I think binaural will be very interesting because of these conversations we're having. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, I think there's something to be said. I think we retract that album first for a reason. And if we, and if I had thought to make it a, a double album, I probably would squeeze on a couple more songs and get it to around 18 and you'd have something really, really special there. And I, and I already do really enjoy the album. Uh, and the, the B sides left off of this are probably the strongest of any album. Okay. Maybe, maybe from, maybe besides 10, but um, yes, a very interesting query indeed. So to piggyback off of that would let it ride cold confession and of the earth get avocado to a place where you would feel just as equally comfortable with that as a double album no no okay why is that it's not strong enough those songs aren't nearly as strong enough. now i say i pearl jam slash avocado is i don't think as strong an album for me as binaural um, front to back. Although when we retracted, it, I really enjoyed my retracking and it made me want to go back and listen to the album again. So I'm kind of of two minds on that record. That said, the the B sides, the cutting room floor tracks for binaural are far and away better than the than the B side throw it away tracks, cutting room floor tracks, I should say, from Avocado. Yeah. So I don't think those belong on the record i don't think i included any of them on my retracking and so if you put them on you'd bloat that thing out to a point of like there's no it was tight it made sense from one to the next and it it would bloat so i i I, I definitely agree with you i will say though that the avocado album was one that did not age well for me over time Mm. and in retrospect I came to come to the, I came to come to the, I came to the realization that it had very much to do with the way it was mixed. Well, we will talk and, about that. Next yes, week, we Paul. will. Exactly. <laughs> next <laughs> so, week, guys, I, is the, uh, is the, what year, 15 anniversary, 15 year anniversary of the release of Pearl Jam, the self-titled mm-hmm. album, Pearl Jam slash Avocado, May 2nd, 19, uh, 2006. Um, so we will do a little, Little B.O.B. versus original mixing analysis. But that's for next week. It is. And, and I love that that is our logical extension off of this conversation where we are both in agreement that Avocado as a double album simply would not work despite the, the many, many clips that are still on the cutting room floor, perhaps. so. Yes. All right. Well, this there you go. What if? There you go. Huh? What if? What if? Uh, let's move on to the main meat here. And that is songs that you think are better in the studio than they are in the live environment. So um, you, per usual, this is kind of our rule here is we tend to have one or two bonus honorable mentions here. Do you want to give one um, sure. before we get into our top here? Yeah. I what think uh, one that 
that really stands out to me is th this is a bonus one but no way off of yield there's just something about the way that song that intro slides in on the album mm. and you don't get that you know it just it just kind of comes down with the chord when they play it live as infrequently as they do and the production i feel is so much crisper on the album whereas live it just feels a little muddy and and, and messy which is cool i mean I, i'm not saying i don't enjoy hearing it live i i don't think i've heard it live personally i'd have to go back and check my pearl jam stat tracker but uh all, all things considered that's a track that i i genuinely enjoy everything just being crisper and tighter the way that it is in the studio so that's one how about you uh the, the one that i have here is um worldwide suicide interesting yeah it, um it's it's simply that Ed can't scream like the song demands for three and a half minutes, mm. and that's kind of really all it is. You know, it's an, it's a it's a vocally driven song because of the urgency in the in, in the delivery, which the theme demands. And mm -hmm. if it's not there, then it doesn't hit the same way. So it's kind of like a um, kind of like a car running out of gas. Like no offense to him, but he's getting up there in age. And it's hard to scream like that or yeah. hit some of those notes he used to. So it's just better on the record for me. W would you say the same thing about rear view mirror? Um, I don't think I, it needs to be sung uh, screaming wise to be. Good. No, it, it, it's not blood. But I mean, there's something about the ending, the crescendo and, and the layered vocals as well to that song that we don't necessarily get. When you well, the layered live. vocals is the other guys just not doing the Their part <laughs> once you once you part everyone sings yeah. river mirror but no one sings once you once you so that third vocal line is always missing live i don't know why there's four other singers on the yeah. stage it always bugs me that no one it sings bugs once me you, once too you. come That's, on boom we need I, you <laughs> yeah boom get in there <laughs> yeah, anyway. all right okay so cool what do you got what do you got for, for your fifth here okay so uh i'm gonna go with i'm gonna go with black um this really? is a tough one for me. Yeah, man. Look. Oh my I, lord. It, it is it is the one song that every every time I go see Pearl Jam live, it's the song that I want to hear. Well, yeah. But we've spoken about this. Uh Mike's guitar has essentially replaced Eddie's lyrics. I'm sorry, vocals in this track as the highlight, which I adore when I'm there and and I love the recordings, the solos are epic. I mean, it really takes you somewhere else. That being said, there's something about Eddie's delivery that's been lost through age that you cannot replicate that with instrumentation because that the heart and soul of that song is in the lyrics and in the delivery. And Eddie just simply can't sing that song the way he did when he was 29. You know what I mean? And which I respect, I understand. I'm, this is not a judgment. It's it, And it, that being said, I just, I can't help but miss that version of the song that I know I'm never going to hear again live. And so that just, that exists in a, a capsule and it exists in a place that, and I, I didn't get to see Pearl Jam enough in those early years. You know, I didn't see them on the 10 tour, the Versus tour, the Vitality tour. I didn't see them during that era. Right. I saw them a little bit later in the 90s. And so I never got to hear that song played in, in the way that, perhaps many Pearl Jam fans have and when they look back and they hear those bootlegs it just brings them back somewhere special I don't have that and so I think for me 
the studio version is the closest thing I'm ever going to have to that. And I think that's why. And it was also the version I fell in love with. And because when I hear it live, I don't ever get to hear that version. That's why I prefer that version. Okay. It's not a slight on the live track. It's just, you know. Just a little surprise is all. But yeah. I get it, I guess. I, I do get it. Uh, I'm going to go less controversial with my first one here. By the way, these are in no particular order. These are right. just our five in general. Um, I'm going to go with Get Right. Interesting. The thing about a song whose main riff is based on harmonics is that they're a lot harder to get exactly right live than in the studio. And doubly so when you get those perfect harmonics in stereo on the record and only one of the guitar players is doing them live, which is Mike. So it falls, it becomes, it just falls flat on his face. It sounds incredibly thin and weak uh, on the live cuts. And it might be that most live versions of this are from the right act tour and i don't think they were living in a world guitar wise where the gain was as high as it's been elsewhere i think we've talked about mm -hmm. it before the early 2000s um but this one really takes a, a step down from the record for me the, the you know the binaural tour um performance wise was incredible but the guitar sound um just dropped off uh from there through right act and it's weird because on the record the guitars have this really cool crunch but live they're limp and i don't know why and since dynamically there isn't a lot of other stuff happening uh riff wise at least around that the tone of the guitar matters that much more and live they just don't you know they haven't shown like they did on the record now, also, as an aside, I think this is one of the, my favorite Mike solos of all time. Honestly, it really, really is. It's I think a great the phrasing, one. what was that? It's a great one. Yeah, I think the phrasing um, and pacing are, are just fucking fantastic. And, and it, I, he never replicates this live. Um, right. And then last but not least, there's no cowbell live. <laughs> you gotta have the cowbell in there. Needs so, more cowbell. big miss, big miss. So, Get Right, really cool song. Love it on the record, but it just does not hit for me live. Yeah. Uh, th those are some salient points. I hadn't thought of a lot of those insights that you just... I made. think like a guitar player. So, when I hear the guitars and I'm like, it's just not there. I hear you. What do you got? Um, I think for me, I'm going to go with Off He Goes. Mm. There's something about the, the quiet solitude of that track, the loneliness in the song, the fact that it's played with... The, there's an acoustic tinge to it. And I feel like when they play it live most of the time it just has this distorted plugged in feel to it and uh mm. I, I don't know I mean, it, it it's i don't sometimes it feels like i'm listening to glycerin or something like that <laughs> it's like just really? unplug that thing for this track i don't know it, there, there's something missing there. there there's an alienation to the song that i don't quite get um you know, when you plug in like that, you're 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 amplifying. You know what I mean? And it, for me, it doesn't amplify the tone and the mood of the song. It, it it energizes it in a way that it almost makes me feel like he doesn't go. You know what I mean? Off he goes. He 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 decides to come back and sit down. You know, and let's let's put on another record. And so I just don't get that sound from it when when they don't replicate it that way. It drove me nuts actually on the. Uh, binaural tour when I, I felt like everything was like distorted <laughs> do you think um that's a problem for that song or all of the more quiet intimate songs not because all. You, you, you could be like around the bend doesn't work that way thumb my way doesn't work that way you know you yeah, know that but thumbing my way for the most all part or none. That, but a lot of these tracks they typically do pull out 
an acoustic guitar. Uh, there's something about Off He Goes where I feel like we, th there were many versions live that we didn't hear it that way. Um, and and that, again, that, that's awesome that they're, they're trying something new. You know what I mean? They're, they're playing it in a new way. Sometimes you need that to refresh a song. Uh, this particular song, I just feel like you, you lose something when you do that is all. Hmm. So that, that's four for me. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go next with All Night. Now, hmm. um, fascinating. Yeah. Uh, some audience, some audiences have been treated to this song with, with a lot of backing vocals. Um, but usually, if you've been lucky enough to hear it, it's just Ed and maybe the, the, the back, the guys um, singing background, and maybe it's like one or two of them. Now, this song is all about vocal layers. It's almost like the vocals are what they are because of the layers. Like the layers act as one. Everything goes missing in the live performance because of this. And it's probably why they don't play it very much. It's another song guitar-wise that doesn't have um, much going on dynamically. It's really just an Ed vehicle, save for the few moments Mike gets to go off on it. But and that's awesome. But without the vocal layers, you're kind of living in a dad punk world. And I think there were um, a smattering of performances around that 0304 time when Lost Dogs came out where they had like, maybe it was Slater Kinney that was there. And I think maybe on the um, the uh, PJ20 thing at Alpine Valley, they might've had some backing vocals mm -hmm. and it really shone. Like it was thick, the layers acted as one and it made sense for the song. But when you don't have it, it doesn't work. Yeah, I hear that. So for three, for me, I'm going to go with Garden. Uh, there is so mm. much, so much atmosphere. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Are you are you talking about, because this is one of those things that is very, I guess it works with Garden, I was sorry, with Black as well, a little bit, in that, are we talking about just in generally live or like, you know, 92 live versus 2018 live? No, I mean, in general, in general. Really? Yeah, and I say that because there's so much atmosphere to the beginning of this song. There's almost this um, ethereal, um, I don't know, it, it's a dream-like, it feels like a, mm. it, there's a dreamy, ethereal feel to it. Like you're literally walking through this this hazy garden of stone, and none of that translates life. Uh, they, they don't apply any effects to the song, for the most part, um, which is unfortunate. I actually am not a fan of the Brendan O'Brien mix of this track. I, I actually prefer the original one. I love the 10 remix, but this song, I think the original mix holds up best. There's just so much atmosphere that gets lost. And, and I, for me, that's what made me fall in love with the track. It, it's what I think defines the song in a lot of ways, sonically speaking. And I think when it's played live, uh, it doesn't soar as much. And without that atmosphere, it, it just loses a lot of the mood that accompanied it on the album, so uh, which is unfortunate. So it's it, again, none of these songs would I kick out of bed live. You know what I mean? I'm at a show. I'm, I'm I'd love to hear all all of these tracks, but this is one in particular that you know, if I had to choose, I'm more inclined to lean studio than live. Interesting. Yeah, that's well. Yeah, the, the as we all know, the the Redux version was stripped of a lot of the wet reverb as yeah. it were and that so, wet reverb was great on that one so yeah I, I understand what you're saying i always think of that song more from its dichotomy of like kind of tranquil and eerie versus heavy 
less than the fact that it's kind of caked in that atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But I can understand how you would think of it atmosphere first and then those two dynamics. So um, interesting choice, interesting choice. Uh, I'm going to go next with education. So the drum sound for me is everything in this song, and I've never heard it replicated. There is something about the reverb, back to reverb, on the kit, the tone of the toms. Drums are the one instrument that you can't really change in a live show. They are what they are, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's it's too unwieldy and time-consuming and or expensive to have drum options. I don't think you ever see that really. So, whereas, you know, the other four guys, they can swap out guitars or their bass, every song to fit the right tone. On top of that, they have pedals. They've got a multitude of amps they can select from or use all together. So those guys can really change their tone from song to song, from phrase to phrase. Whereas drums just really can't even turn the snare off, I guess, but that's kind of it. Um, he just manages super limited in what he can do. Um, and so he, he kind of has to have an all encompassing sound to kind of match the catalog uh, as a whole. And generally that's okay. But with this song, it kind of drops the bar. And a, a footnote for this would be the vocal harmonies. The way Ed harmonizes himself has not been adequately replicated live for me. And no offense to Matt or anyone else, but sometimes it needs to be Ed that's that's doing the vocal layers. And obviously live you can't do that, uh, but here it's required. And obviously that's impossible, like I said. So while I still would love to hear this song, it's not going to be anything like the recorded version for me. Right. I hear that. Good points. Nothing Man slots in at number two for me. Mm. Again, one of my favorite songs. <laughs> You'd think these are the songs that I would want to hear live first and foremost, and they are. However, there's something about that warm analog vinyl feel. Maybe it's the way it just zips in mm-hmm. like a, like a record on the album, but I don't get any of that. Um, this is one of those songs where I don't want to hear it on acoustic guitar. Uh, you know, I, I want to hear that clean, plugged-in sound, that warm um, melancholy that you get from the way that it's played on the album. And I've never heard it played that way live. I don't know if the band wants to replicate that sound live. Maybe it's it's unique to that track in a way that you know it, it's not worth the hassle of deploying the tech necessary to pull it off or I don't know. I really don't, but it's a song that it feels like a different track to me live, which I love and appreciate. So I enjoy hearing it, but I do wish that I could just one time hear something a little closer to the sound that we get on Vitology and we just don't hear that live. Well, I'm just going to carry on because I had nothing man here too. So great. Mention the guitar tone. I, 100% 100% agree. Clean electric guitar with a vibrato bar, giving the little that that seasicky approach. Um, he yeah, he never plays it that way. It's always an acoustic. Maybe, maybe one time he might have had the um, resonator guitar, but sometimes it's, it's just always, dirty, distorted, and I really don't like it that way. I mean, I, I remember hearing what was it, the fir- the very first time in, in Auburn, um, in Arbor. I think it was distorted. Yeah. Um it just it just sounds weird. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it. it <laughs> You want to hear it. You want to hear it clean, electric. Um, never have, as far as I can tell. I'm sure there's got to be one out there, right? Um, but harder to notice that are the keys. This is yeah. a very subtle detail from Brendan O'Brien. And I can't tell what kind of instrument he's playing. It's not a piano or an organ, 
but it really fills in the gaps nicely between i'm sorry because um mike doesn't have a lot to do here mm -hmm. and finally the way uh data Brzez plays the drums outside of indifference i don't know that we ever really hear him be so gentle on the key. yeah i know <laughs> and that, that that bass drum just feels like a cup it it's just, just it's i mean that, that's brendan o'brien right the, yeah. brendan o'brien the way he produces drums and records drums is is very very interesting i, I watched a very interesting um this is a little side tangent but if any of you are, are music fans out there you might know somebody named rick beato who has a very um popular youtube channel talking about music and he goes over how brendan o'brien records drums and it's pretty friggin unbelievable but anyway um you know dave uses the brushes instead of sticks i mentioned just before you know with uh, education that matt really can't change much up live um b besides maybe brushes um from sticks and you know just the, the soft touches and the simple fills just carry carry the way to allow ed to shine and, and this song is really about ed and stone's guitar um than anything else and he does a great job of kind of staying out of the way and i feel like matt doesn't match this live uh these days and he gives a more kind of standard approach um now this is not to say that i have anything bad to say about matt because i pretty much love matt to pieces and i think he makes every song generally um better he makes the band better generally speaking i should say but for this song when the drums need to be kind of dialed back and you the hilarious that dave is the one to, to make that work right because he's the bombastic guy right. it just that's the way it should be um Nothing Man is a fantastic song, but it's just not at the same level live as much as I do love it live. I heard that. Cannot, can't argue with you there, my friend. You can't because you also picked it. That's right. <laughs> we are synonymous on this one. So number, number one for me, yeah, it, it, no surprise, sleight of hand. It, it's a song that I mentioned atmosphere mm. in the past. If there is a song that lives in the ether the way that sleight of hand does tell me what it is because i can't think of one in the entire catalog uh, of all tracks this one needs i almost feel like in order to listen to this song you have to be in some bizarre like neon green and purple haze with a fog machine and and you know everything has to be blurry and double vision it's drugs it, <laughs> yeah, you really do need to, 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 to put yourself in this bizarre space. I said drugs. Of, <laughs> well, it's funny, Eddie referred to it as, as, I think on VH1 Storytellers, as a car song, where he said, just what? imagine yourself stuck in traffic, and you just think about all the years of your life that have led to right now, and wondering, how did I get here? That's too much for a stop in the car. No, I, I agree. But I mean, it, it, he, I just remember him paraphrasing it like this. And so it's one of those types of tracks that you really do. It, it's a get, it's about the subject getting so lost in thought, just saying I, I, the monotonous day to day. How did I get here? I'm, I've lost myself in this routine and I just can't fathom why Look, we get these cool guitar tones with songs like You Are and even Parting Ways, they managed to add some strings to it. I, there's got to be a creative way to, to try to, especially now that they're going to be doing Dance of the Clairvoyance Live. So we're going to have some extra 
equipment up there, I would imagine, in the future when they when they tour. So I'm really hoping that they're going to do sleight of hand and that it's going to get some new treatment because it's so stripped and scaled down live that it, it becomes, dare I say, I, I, I hate to call it a boring song, but... No, 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 you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure you'd like me to, but I will not, Jason. There's something about the song that you, you, it's completely devoid of all of that atmospheric nuance that you find on the record. And without that, it's simply not the same track anymore, and it's unfortunate. So I would love to hear it played in some capacity that, sh that, that shares some of that space. Obviously, there might be all kinds of things going on in the studio that you just simply can't do live. But there are a lot of things you can do. And it, sometimes it sounds to me like they're not really doing anything with the song other than just playing the notes. And so would love to hear it. For a band that likes to jam out on Rearview Mirror and Porch and Corduroy now these days, um, I find very odd that they have never gone on, daughter, that they have never gone on some extended break and gotten super weird with this song. With Sleight of Hand? Yeah. Oh, it has. It, there's such a Pink Floyd vibe. They could it go completely just dark side of the they? moon with this thing, man. It, it, I know. It's so. Uh, it's it's just that song for me. That even even like the back end of even flow solo. Sometimes Michael gets super weird. You'll see him kneeling in front of his pedal board and like he's like tweaking his delays and his reverbs and like swirling sounds. Give and us like, that. <laughs> like we're why, have why, some fun with this one. Yeah. Why not just do that for sleight of hand on like a long extended interlude or something I don't, I don't understand maybe it's because I'm with, I'm with I mean I have to imagine because they just think the song is boring as I do <laughs> didn't really speak for me <laughs> uh, okay I'll do my last one here you mentioned it before it's no way um, as many of us know the song isn't played for a long long time um, Stone just didn't want to play it and yep. uh, I've said a couple times in this show that I once made a personal request to play this song in 2006. Um, I was met with, hey, Stone, this guy has a demand for you. And I said, no, it was a humble request. Uh, they didn't play it for another couple of years, I don't think. But uh, they finally brought it back eventually. Thanks to you. <laughs> yeah. It sounded a bit different. And it, it's still very cool to hear this song live. Um, more, I think, for the novelty of it than anything else. Yeah. Um, but... Stone probably had a point because it doesn't hit like the album version at all. And, and you mentioned it before briefly. Right. For whatever reason, Stone can't or doesn't want to replicate that half-cocked wah sound on the main riff. And that's kind of everything in this song. It's the bedrock. And I should point out that you know the way Jack plays drums on this one, um, in, in no, it, it's never been replicated by Matt Live. Again, love Matt to pieces. My favorite drummer of the group's history, as we pointed out in previous episode. But there is something about how Jack plays this song that just makes it. That laid back, barely in the groove, like quote unquote late style is just perfect for this. And between this and the Wallachs from Stone, this song almost comes across drunk and it's perfect. And hell, even the interlude has that great blend of, of regular and half cocked wah guitars and they don't do that live these days. They just both play the heavy part. And as someone who likes heavy music, I actually don't prefer this live. It's just weird, right? This is a song that Ed doesn't play guitar on, but he probably needs to because there are so many little random fills that really help sell it. 
And the final chorus has these whale call type guitar fills in the left channel that go missing live. Big miss. Stone is doing the main riff and Mike is soloing. Don't get me wrong. I love hearing it live. Um, and especially after such a long layoff. Still a rarity these days. But it just, it, it seems Stone's instinct was right. And the album version is just too good. Too many cool layers. Too many cool sounds. Completely with you, man. in time okay i'm back are, are, um, are we doing gigaton are you gonna throw i'm just gonna i'm just gonna say you're gonna song. imagine yourself at a show hearing a gigaton track i just live, got saying, back ah, from Ohana, I just, <laughs> and i want to tell you that retrograde sounds better on the album oh, no. <laughs> i'm disappointed but <laughs> let's go to the lyric of the week All right, Paul, Lyric of the Week this week comes from No Code. It's Red Mosquito. Paul, Red Mosquito. We talked about what we want to do this week, and mm-hmm. we oftentimes uh, try and tie lyrics to something current, so we can attach another uh, contemporary layer to a um, to a theme that has been around for a while. Mm-hmm. I'll let you leave this one off. Um, those of you listening who do not live in the United States. We just saw the culmination of a a rather dramatic and I think important court case in American history involving the trial of an American police officer who was charged with, uh, I have to look up the exact charges. Uh, It it was uh, assault. It was, uh, I forget the... um, Degree of murder. You'd have to pull that one up for me. I'm looking it up. Sorry. Yeah. The, no. The no. Just, I, I'll keep it talking. Is, it is. Um, uh, oh my god! Where did it go? Second degree unintentional murder. Third uh-huh. degree murder and second degree manslaughter. Correct. Now this this particular police officer found himself on top of an African American man by the name of George Floyd. And Mr. Floyd at the time, as he was being detained, uh, repeatedly yelled, I cannot breathe, I can't breathe, due to this police officer's knee, which was placed uh, behind George Floyd's neck, pinning him to the ground. Well, eventually, George Floyd died. He he essentially fell unconscious and without the ability to breathe, (laughs) sadly passed away. And so... Uh, I'm, 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 I'm still at, I'm still shocked at the result because a guilty verdict was reached and I was fully prepared for this man to 
walk. Uh, we've seen this in the past where a minority is killed by a police officer in the line of duty. And at the end of the day, whether the police officer was at fault and, and look, I, I, I fully support the wonderful work police officers do. They help keep our society safe. They help keep our communities safe. I'm a, a parent. I have children. Believe me, the last thing I want is uncivilized anarchy in the streets. So in no way do I want to diminish the brave work of America's finest. However, there are some in that group who unfortunately, whether it's through nefarious reasons or whether it's due to a lack of training, find themselves making choices that ultimately lead to an unnecessary loss of life. And this, I think, is one of those cases. And justice was promptly served. What I find interesting about this particular case was how many people were prepared for that justice to not be served and the reaction thereafter. Because I was fearful of riots and just, to, to use the same word again, anarchy. Thankfully, that did not happen. Instead, we were bombarded with uh, Fox News talking to us about the promotion of riots and anarchy <laughs> and, and, and how somehow this should be spun in a way that, you know, the result and the verdict was an injustice in some way. But, but let's not directly say that. Let's indirectly insinuate that. So it's just really unfortunate that we can't just look at this objectively. And perhaps that's not possible. Perhaps due to the various interests involved with a high-profile case like this, we can't do that. Maybe we, we have to be subjective when we look at it. All I know is that I would like to see meaningful change come about in this country so that we as adults can better model the type of society that we want our kids to inherit and create for their children. And I feel as though racial injustice is something that needs to be tackled with greater urgency and meaningful practice. And this was a step in that direction, which I do appreciate. Now, the song and the lyrics of Red Mosquito, on the surface, one would think, well, what does the song have to do with the events of the George Floyd case? And uh, you, you had pointed out, rightly so, uh, that when you hear these, these lyrics here, I was bitten, must have been the devil. He was paying me a little visit, reminding me of his presence, letting me know he's awaiting. You focused or we, I guess, we can all focus on conscience. We all have the, the devil and the angel, the proverbial devil and angel on each shoulder. And in this case, as you mentioned, is there a lack of conscience? Is there a not enough pause and not enough processing that can happen due to either a lack of training or due to potentially... Um, yeah, and again, I'm, I'm not going to make any allegations here. I mean, I don't know what was going through the man's mind at the time. All I know is that he needed to take his knee off of George Floyd's neck and he didn't. And, mm -hmm. and at some point in time, when you're listening to somebody say, I can't breathe, that should trigger something. And it didn't, unfortunately. And so, you know, I think we all have to, to kind of think about that, but I'm going to be honest with you, this lyric it's hard for me to listen to the song 
without listening to the line that ends the song. And the, the line that ends the song is, if I had known then what I know now. And, and I go back to when I first really started exploring Pearl Jam live, because, you know, we talked about songs that we preferred in the studio versus live. Well, 99, 2000, that was kind of the era that I was really starting mm -hmm. to, to, to go check the band out on tour. And if I go back, if I go back myself to that period in time, back to 2000, for example, if I had known then that there would be two times the number of documented police killings nationwide between then and now, if I had known then that 67% of people killed by police using firearms would be happening across those 20 years, if I had known then that 199 children in America under the age of 12 would be killed during an altercation with law enforcement, since 2000. Um, if I had known then that the percentage, 1%, the percentage of police-involved killings that resulted in an arrest or an indictment of the officer. This case is an outlier, believe it or not. Those of you outside of the country listening to this, this case is an outlier. If I had known then that only 5% of police departments nationwide voluntarily track and report police misconduct allegations to the federal government. If I had known then what I know now, I wonder what type of a view and how that would have shaped the way I viewed racial injustice as a far younger man, as a, even as a, as a teenager. And so those listening, it's really important that we educate ourselves and that we share what we know so that we don't find ourselves 20 years from today, looking back at 2020 and 2021, saying, if I had known over the next 20 years, then what I know now, realizing we haven't moved the needle at all. Yeah. And for our, our younger listeners, um, the younger Pearl Jam fan, maybe in their 20s, um, younger than that. I mean, it, it is definitely something to be mindful of. And I think if you're a Pearl Jam fan and you are that young, um, kudos to you for having the, I thought I'm going to be on a soapbox here. Um, I, I feel like, especially going th through the band's catalog, you have the visceral reaction um, from the earlier stuff. The later stuff kind of forces you to dive a little deeper. And if, you've, if you enjoy that stuff too, I think you probably understand uh, what we're talking about when it's, you know, think about where you're at, try and think about something bigger than yourself and apply some critical thinking and think, shit, this can't, if the needle hasn't moved that, that much, what's it going to be like in 20 years if I don't act? Now, let me back up a little bit. Uh, the chorus here that bleeds into that last part, that last line. For me, and you mentioned it, it's, it's, I'm not a religious man, but the, uh, the concept of good and evil and giving those concepts avatars is ubiquitous. And you know, we're talking about Derek Chauvin here. We haven't said his name yet, but Derek Chauvin, there you go. Um, being bitten by the devil, Derek Chauvin being bitten by the devil was at some point, it was at some point during that nine minutes of kneeling on George Floyd's neck that he felt for a split second 
that what he was doing could be considered wrong, evil. Just for a little reminder that your conscience is real. It's your personal choice to ignore it or to act on it. And that's what this song is about to me, our conscience and, and the reminders it gives us about the choices that we make. When we choose wisely, we are rewarded in some way, either just by feeling good uh, about doing good or, or good karma or something more tangible. Like if you get like, let's say you, you return a lost dog and you get like 500 bucks and you know, there you go. that's great. There you go. And when you do bad things, you know, when you do bad, the devil is right there waiting to quote unquote reward you with the other side of karma. And that conscience is always floating around you like an annoying mosquito, reminding you of what the right thing is and what the wrong and what the choice will get you. And I don't care how uh, good or bad somebody acts, how they are. There is a conscience there. It's whether or not you have the capacity to ignore it or not. And I think most of us, regardless of whatever we believe in on a, on a spiritual religious plane or don't at all. I think most people inherently understand their conscience and, and their good and evil sides and what the right choice is. And, and pa- part of parenting, you mentioned yeah. it before part of parenting is to teach those things. And most, you know, I shouldn't say most of us, many of us teach our children um, good and bad, regardless of how we, we learn that it exists. You know, and I talk about, higher powers or not. It doesn't matter. You can have every religion under the sun or no religion at all. And we're all trying to teach our kids right and wrong. So, so for me, it's, it's, it's there regardless of, of, of faith. Right. Yeah. So there's no excuse. Is my point. There's no excuse. Everybody learns this because I think in, in inherently human beings understand the, the idea of the conscience and understand the idea of right and wrong. And some people choose to ignore those little reminders, that little mosquito flying around your head, bzz, little little bite. <laughs> when you know you're doing something wrong, do you say, mm, you know what? This does, that doesn't feel right. I shouldn't do this. Or do you say, fuck that. Who cares? I'm going to do what I want to do. And this motherfucker decided that he was bigger than that and that the mosquito didn't matter. And he swatted it away. And he got, he got the bad karma because... At the end of the day, the devil, he was awaiting. And uh, now he will be in prison for probably ever. So there you go. And by the way, that song was written when Ed had food poisoning in San Francisco in yep. a hotel room. Yeah. <laughs> I think How we wasn't. somehow correlated Red Mosquito to the uh, I really do think the song case. is about conscience, though. It is, man. It really, really is in a lot of ways. And I feel that this was because I was racking my brain trying to think as I really wanted to talk about the, this. The, the tail was wagging the dog on, the, on this lyric of the week, guys. Yeah. And and uh, you were like, fuck, I want to talk about this and, and, and not shoehorn it. And I said, you know what? I agree. And I, I said to you, how about Red Mosquito? I think this can, I think this works because it's about and conscience. And I commend you for making that connection. So um, apologies to you guys um, who maybe, maybe you don't know the case very well, or if you think we tried to shoehorn this, I honestly, you know, I, I, I say that we were the tails wagging the dog for this, but I think it actually does apply because conscience is something that is applicable to everything. And this is a very conscience um, uh, centric thing. Yeah. Uh, and it happened this week. 
So, uh, or this past week. So there you go. Let's move on to our live cut of the week. live cut we're gonna head back to the mid 90s um are we speaking german today we are we're going to oh, berlin yes, buddy very, very nice. <laughs> the worst german accent ever i apologize to all my german friends i'm sorry that was terrible do you have any german friends jason you know i have friends who live in germany and i'm sure and we have some german listeners so i don't want to you know Doesn't make fun of them i love the germans did, did they're lovely out there what's up didn't aurora move out to germany she did. She did. Yeah. yeah. We Her do lovely, have we do have a friend. We have listeners in Germany as well. And we the consider Germans. all of you our friends to boot. And we're very grateful that you're listening today, which is why we wanted to remind you to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Wow, speaking of shoehorning, <laughs> good Lord, long walk for that one. Yeah. What's our, what's, where are we going today? I'm, oh, we're, God. We're, we're going to Berlin, 1996. I know we've talked about this show in the past. Um, it's just, it's part of that catalog of live shows from 96 that we are dying to hear, get the vault treatment. And and we don't have that yet. We're waiting for that epic no code show. This I think is one of the finest and this version of red mosquito really stands out to me. I just think it's a striking live performance and the production and the sound recording quality is outstanding as well. All right, November 3rd, 1996 in Berlin.
Paul, this one's interesting for me because uh, we've heard this so many different ways over the years. Uh, famously, for many, many years, Ben Harper has joined in and played extended slide guitar mm. um, throughout um, lap steel slide guitar for many times. And so it's got a very different vibe to it when he shows up versus when the, just the band plays it. Now, this one, the intro, it kind of... It's weird because Mike sort of either ends early or they extend it. And usually like when he ends that intro slide guitar uh, line, it goes right into Ed and there's no, there's no, I don't want to say wasted space, but there's no, like, there's no space. It's very, Mm -hmm. it's a very um, efficient song in that way. But this time it kind of like lets you gradually come down before, before Ed comes back in. I thought that was very interesting. Um, And I think that, you know, We've spoken about this show being being tight, being energetic. It's it's early on in the band's career with Jack, probably the height of Jack. I would say was this was this maybe this European tour. Uh, we talked about the, the, the night after this in Hamburg and how that should probably get the treatment as well, the vault treatment. There's something about these two shows, and there's something about the no code songs from this tour specifically. And I know that's what we're talking about. We talked about in my retreat from this show, I believe. Uh, there's one other song from this show that I think we've chosen. Yeah. Uh, but this is one of those songs that I think people kind of forget about sometimes. And, uh, you know, a, a multiple slide guitar solos, not a very common thing, especially in Pearl Jam's catalog. But Mike does a beautiful job here. He doesn't hit any wrong notes. And, you know, like I said before, I think this is one of, I think this is basically the back end of the, of the best part of Eddie's vocals. Mm-hmm. So on top of the crowd, on top of the experience, I think we made a wise choice. And uh, yeah, Red Mosquito. What, a, what an interesting chat about this song this week. I enjoyed it. I thought uh, there was a lot to lot to discuss, a lot of territory to mine. And look, I'm really hopeful that we are going to start finding better answers as a culture, as a society, as a community or a set of communities. In the meantime, if you're listening to this, we have Pearl Jam's music to help us reflect, to help us in our our quest through dialogue to find greater understanding and clarity. And while the band may not necessarily aim with every composition to to try and enlighten or, or generate existential conversation, I think at some point or another, they're very conscious in how they compose music and they want their music to serve in some way as a social commentary and that that's been a hallmark throughout much of their music and more than anything else this happened this week and i felt like pearl jam's music was the best way for me to kind of explore my own thoughts on the matter and so i'm grateful to this podcast that uh, i have the opportunity to do that with you jason well, thank you. Uh, yeah. And just to put a, a bookend on something, you know, we talked about rocking for a cure at the very top of the mm-hmm. show. It was yeah. it was last week's episode. Uh, Can anybody like- retroactively go back and and re review that? Anyone listening that maybe couldn't hear that show is that something that was taped? Oh, it's available. Maybe? You you can go back and watch it. it it's on. Um, uh, it's on. Oh, what the hell is it on? It's on Touring Fan Live's Facebook page. It's about a two-hour show. You can go back and rewatch it. I watched it the other day. And um, we talk about Rockin' for a Cure. That was about Parkinson's. I think Pearl Jam in general rocks for the cure of a lot of society's ills. 
And one of those cures that we're looking for is um, better policing and uh, the scourge of racism being uh, booted out of the door. Yeah. So there you go. A lovely way to end the show on a high note. Mm-hmm. Uh, next week, I mentioned it before the top of the show, actually the middle of the show, uh, we are going to be talking we're gonna, about... We're going to split an avocado. The original... We're going to split it, buddy. Brendan O'Brien yeah. remix of Avocado. You take one half, I'll take the other. Then we'll we'll pull a little switcheroo, and we'll see which one's better. Is that what we're we, going to do? We already know Paul's answer. <laughs> well, we probably know my answer, too. Yeah. But it'll be it'll be far more nuanced than that one or yeah, that one. Because exactly. otherwise, it'll be the shortest podcast in the history. The shortest podcast ever. <laughs> we'll tell God, you these why. guys are really phoning it in now. <laughs> You get past week. 50 episodes and 15 it's just a seconds chore. Of podcast. <laughs> that one, that one. There you go. All right. So until our 15 second podcast next week, you've been listening to <laughs> the state of love and trust. Yeah.